death sentence. Uh, we're not doing news this week because anything we say will be outdated uh, basically by the time we stop recording. Uh, you know what's going on in the world. It's fucked out there. Um, we are on the line with uh, Dan, uh, whose second name I've already forgotten because I'm a fucking shit show here. Um, Dan Franklin. Franklin. Yeah, there we go. Um, who is the author of Heavy, How Heavy Metal Changes the Way We See the World. Uh, Dan, hey, how's it going? And don't just say bad, we know bad. but you know. <laughs> I'm, I'm good, I'm good. In, in the How can you be good at a world like this? Sorry. Yeah, that's, that's a lie. Reaction. <laughs> yeah. I'm, you know, I'm in a, I, I'm in a weird kind of... Uh, ambivalent state of mind where i'm very happy to have, happy to have this book out in the world and for people to be reading it and to be talking to you guys and at the same time trying to adjust to uh you know this sort of you know bedrock of anxiety which is running through everything at the moment um so yeah it's a weird time but you know i'm all right i'm surfing it okay good i'm glad um that's yes. exactly one of the three of us. He's doing well. That's good. <laughs> that percentage is up from the uh, estimate uh, that we had before starting, which was zero. Hmm. That's <laughs> the minuses. Um, yeah, so yeah, the world is kind of heavy right now, I think. And um, you wrote a book about one of the only good things, which is like there's still music for the time being, at least. Um, so heavy is i mean the first thing what was cool about this book which i mentioned when i was emailing you is within like first five pages maybe you talk about i mean you start with a nietzsche quote which will always you know i'm, I'm basically a 17 year old at heart so i I'll always appreciate a nietzsche quote um and then you go then we talk you talk about um the uh yeah, you've seen Baroness at the Barfly on 12th of July, 2012. I was also at that gig. I, I, yeah, I was living in Camden at the time. Um, and then you talk about the first album I ever got, which was Appetite for Destruction. First album I ever got was Appetite for Destruction. Uh, yeah, we, we've been like, and, and you were at a uh, Reading festival that I was at. And we've been kind of like in each other's orbit without meeting for uh, apparently all of our lives. Um, so I, I don't know if we're supposed to like fight. Are we supposed to fight? I Is think that... that's how that works. You, um, you fight each other and one of you has to eat the head of the other one like a praying oh. mantis. This, no, being 20, this being 2020 that means we have to do a podcast <laughs> together oh yeah i mean i think like now right so yeah. I, most most things involving uh white males do in, end up in podcasting <laughs> so that would that's the uh yeah that's the natural order of things at the moment so yeah tell tell us a little about the concept behind heavy oh my intention in writing the book was I felt for a, for a long time that when it comes to writing about metal music and heavy music in general, that people tend to focus on the who, the what, the where, 
the when, the how, but never really ask why. Um, why is it that this music is so magical and affects so many people so profoundly? Why is it so popular? Um, so, and in asking that question, I think you, you quite quickly come to, well, I came to thinking that the main reason why is this idea of heaviness. But what is heaviness? And if you can define heaviness or get a sort of sense of it, because the book essentially is me grappling with trying to articulate what it is for 85,000 words. Um, and then it's up to other people. Successfully, I managed to do that. Um, but, you know, it, it, it then follows, well, if heaviness is a quality that you can define in metal music, can you find it in other genres of music? Uh, and can you then find it in other art forms, uh, books, films, uh, pieces of fine art? And then once you've established that maybe heaviness kind of joins different parts of culture in a web, um, then you can then put metal back, uh, as far as I see it, sort of set it in its rightful place at the heart of culture. Um, and you know, I my the last thing I wanted to do with this book was it to be like a kind of whiny. Oh, why doesn't everyone love metal and say that it's really you know that it's really artistically credible? Or why don't they give it that credibility? That was that was the opposite of what I wanted to do here. Instead, I wanted to say, you know, I say in the book, the metal doesn't need this book, but I feel it deserves it. I feel it deserves that someone tried to. Get into the get into the guts of it, essentially, um, mm -hmm. and uh, yeah. So that was the intention, and it, in fact, it started with a piece of writing, which I started doing, and I just couldn't think of anywhere, any way that I could publish it any other way than in the context of the book, which is the chapter about Tool, um, mm -hmm. because I happened to, you know, beginning of twenty eighteen, I started listening to them again. Like I can't really tell you why, and there's an amazing hype of all their old live gigs on youtube and and i was reading these Aldous huxley books at the same time and they just started speaking to each other and, and that was where i set off really there's a lot of like things speaking to each other in this book i mean that's kind of one of the like really kind of one of the joys of the book is like you bring up a band judas priest uh machine head whoever and then the the reader gets to wonder which think which book or which play or which uh, piece of classical music you're going to bring in to uh, juxtapose with them. Um, yeah, that that was kind of one of the really cool things, and and I like the your explanation of trying to situate metal as as within our grander culture and find the heaviness in obviously stuff like Wagner and um, yeah, just find it anywhere. Because it is kind of everywhere uh, now more than ever. Um, so, for for the people out there who haven't read it, who who you like apart from Tool? Who are your, like touchstones for the book? You're like your key bands that, that we're gonna use as uh, ways into understanding heaviness. You know, as you've already mentioned, Baroness is is a jumping off point um, in the prologue of the book. Um, you know, I, I wanted to talk about the sort of founding myths of the genre without kind of too onerously 
retelling those stories. So, you know, inevitably Led Zeppelin, Black Sabbath, Judas Priest, Ronnie James Dio are in there. And I kind of cast them as the originators of, of the mythology of the genre. And then, you know, it, it takes, it, it then sort of leaps into the eighties with Metallica and the set of thrash bands that came out there. But I wanted to write about Stormtroopers of Death and mm. you know, and yeah, some of that, that was an interesting um that was an interesting choice like like slayer and metallica i would have if it was me i would have done the easy thing and just done slayer and metallica and you do talk about metallica and slayer quite a bit there but yeah why stormtroopers of death exactly well you know the way that i approach looking at, at that genre is you know it struck me that um you know, in 1983, uh, the world was really on the brink um, when it came to the mutually assured destruction pathway that was being sort of laid out between the USSR and the USA. And I think if you look at that was when that period is exactly when Metallica were touring Kill 'Em All and were writing um, Ride the Lightning. And, you know, so they wrote Fight Fire with Fire exactly in that year, in that historical moment. So, it, you know, it was looking at the nuclear threat and, you know, you can look at that. It, it's straight away. It's there in Metallica. It's there in Megadeth. Um, it's there in Anthrax, albeit through sort of biological weapons, you know, just in the names of these bands. Um, you know, Slayer, funnily enough, don't quite fit into that sort of theory or way of looking at the genre. I, I write about them a bit more. Um, when I come to talk about more of the sort of extreme death metal blasphemous uh, bands that emerged, around, you know, just after that. Um, but Stormtroopers of Death, I always felt were interesting because they, I, I felt they satirized, um, you know, that kind of bolshy American neoliberal way of looking at the world um, through the Sergeant D character. Um, and I think they're really interesting to look at again through the lens of, um today because you know it, it it's just a fascinating question how a band like that would cope uh in today's uh you know online environment particularly with songs like fuck the middle east and speak english or die um but i did feel that they were lampooning uh, a sort of state of mind beyond you know, the, the sort of state of mind that was driving a lot of that kind of American expansionism in, in that period. Um, and, and they just wrote, I mean, Speaking of Shall Die, uh, and then Bigger Than the Devil, which came out much later, just great albums. Uh, and, you know, there's a reason why Anthrax still play March of the SAD live, because it's just one of the best metal riffs ever written, and it's one of the heaviest um, and lyrically, I just felt they just they were just completely uncompromising. Um, and, you know, I think exploring them uh, in terms of offense and sort of no quarter given, they just sort of stood out for me to write about. I mean, a general principle with the book, I don't write about any band that I don't love in one way. And so it is very personal in that it's guided by my you know, and it's it's great that it it resonates with you so strongly because you were being at the, some of those same gigs and had some of those same experiences. Um, I, I make no claims that the book is any way complete or comprehensive, 
because if you try and do that with metal, you just get completely tied up in various subgenres and everything else. So it's quite focused in that way. But yeah, I thought Stormtroopers of Death, great band, love that band. They mm. said a lot of very interesting things about that time. So throw them in. Cool. Yeah. And one of the other things that I don't know if it was intentional on your part, but um, you kind of, there's not a lot of time given to the uh, church burning and murders side of Norwegian black metal. I mean, you, you bring up Euronymous. You compare him to, I think it was, was it Melmoth the Wanderer? I, I think uh, it was something really cool. Yeah. Uh, um, so every time we mention Melmoth the Wanderer on this show, we drink a shot. So everyone down it. You guys um, love it. You guys love that book. <laughs> I think Langdon is one of the big, bigger fans than I am, right? Uh, yeah, I'm, I found the book as an adult um, and went absolutely fucking hog wild over it. I read it cover to cover in like three weeks and was like furiously taking notes. I was up at like 4 a.m. just like every sentence is perfect. So yes, and when I got to that part of uh of your book, I was just like oh, oh fuck. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean I, I it, it had a similar impact on me and I, I only read it I read it in the course of writing the book. It was one of these sort of great sort of moments in writing the book where I ended up reading something that kind of really spoke just to what I was sort of conceptualizing at the time um, about black metal in terms of gothic and the gothic um, and starting with obviously with Cradle of Filth because they're so infused with that you know with the literature and themes of yeah. the gothic but Melmoth is different there's you know, there's there's a coldness to Melmoth, which I think just really resonates with um, with that true idea of transgression. I think people get you know we, people get preoccupied by the church burnings because they're shocking and luring, lurid events, um, and they you know and they they are obviously extremely significant in the history of metal music. But what is behind those events for me is that sense of crossing any threshold that you care to cross, which again is something in Gothic literature with vampires and so forth. And Melmoth is, you know, reading that book, someone who, you know, literally, that most of those, you know, key sort of brilliant scenes of him just inviting himself into talking to someone who's in prison in the Spanish Inquisition and burning into them with his eyes. And I just, that image just really resonated with something that um, Eva Bjornsson from Enslaved had said to me when I interviewed him a few years ago about um, Euronymous sort of traveling around with his guitar and going to visit bands and sitting down and playing records to them and showing them interesting guitar chords and talking to them about classical theories of music. You know, he, he just seemed to embody that wanderer figure in the same way. So, to have that scene in Melmoth, the Wanderer, um, you know, the novel where um, the the Inquisition headquarters is burning down and they see this figure just sort of, uh, you know, watching the scene with, with you know, zero passion, like completely um, sort of unmoved by it. It just felt like, because of course, you know, Euronymous, it, you know, it, it, well, the, the the received wisdom is that he wasn't directly implicated in the church burnings, but he was very much a sort of bystander to them. So 
it, that was just a great example of where things just worked thematically for the book yeah. um, and that's why Definitely. i didn't really, i i really didn't want to like i didn't want people who know their stuff like you to read the book and go oh, here we go again church burnings and, <laughs> you know yeah. tony Iommi, i did do tony army cuts off the tips of his fingers and you know and oh look and look you know it, it, it's just i just wanted to avoid cliche um so i'm glad that i'm glad you guys enjoyed that uh no, enjoyed that. yeah I, again like i if i was if it was me and i was being lazy i would go for like Burzum or someone and just tell Varg's story because it's like there's blood and death and Nazis and stuff. But I probably wouldn't even have touched on Cradle of Filth because I'm I'm still at the stage where I think Cradle of Filth kind of passe. I don't really, I don't, I never. That is a bad opinion. I know. I'm, 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 I know that one day I'm going to listen to a Cradle of Filth song and be like, oh shit, I was wrong this whole time. This, I, so, I was so wrong, but it just hasn't happened yet. Um, I'm going to just delay that as, as long as I can. Um, what I love, just incidentally, on Cradle, what I love about Cradle of Filth is that they're transgressive within the genre because they put a lot of sex in it. Uh, yeah. That, uh, whereas in Ulva and Mayhem and all these other bands, they were very like afraid of doing that. They, I think they really feared mm. women. They really feared sex. So Cradle of Filth, they came out and they were like, they were all about sex. Um, hmm. And Dusk and Her Embrace, I, you know, I, I was re-listening to it writing the book. God, it's a masterpiece, you know. So, <laughs> you know, it, it and it, yeah, it's it, yeah, and it's good. I think it's good. I'm pleased you had that reaction because it's good to kind of get um, your assumptions. Yeah, um, definitely. I mean, my like again, if I if I was being lazy and I was writing Euronymous, it would be the the kind of received wisdom as him as this like. Uh, like black metal carnival barker who's just like kind of going around to drum up interest in his band to try and make money and get famous and keep his shitty record shop above in the black um which is kind of how he was portrayed in the uh the um what's his name's film uh it's a chaos film yeah um yeah it's just like very insincere person who really uh could have been working just any genre and just happened to find himself around these people and was just like wanted to be almost like a cult leader but also like a svengali for this whole movement but um yeah this like recasting him as like a, a wandering figure out of myth that was, that was that was a cool move on your part i like that and um yeah it was it was a good uh it, it sorry, touched go on something that i've been thinking about a lot recently which is that we get um, this touches on your comment about wanting to avoid a lot of um, cliches within the metal world um, and sort of the cliches of metal mythology. Um, as, as someone who's, you know, getting older, I'm now in my 30s and I have friends here in their 30s or 40s or 50s. You watch some people who used to very passionately love heavy metal start to fall out of love with it. And some of them it's for, you know, dumb flippant reasons like they suddenly decide that it's child's music in a way that uh even like a couple years prior they would never have said they're like well there are childish people who like it but that's not necessarily a condemnation of all of the art that's made within the sphere that's silly um <clears throat> but some of them have uh this very um it, it's an uncomfortably fair point of you run into people who are obsessed more with the abstract mythology 
in a way that can be very um, cringe inducing because it feels very childish. Like it feels like they have like a child's love of heavy metal and not the kind of like a matured sense of things, which this is frustrating because obviously you, you know, in some, in to, to some degree and like your book grapples with it a lot, there is some sort of primal thing that to be fair, not just metal touches on. And that's another thing I really um, loved about your book is making focusing so much on that connective tissue to the rest of culture that it's not, it's not like a 17 year old's like metal is the best art in the world, but more like there's a thing that it does when metal is its best that is shared with things like Gothic literature, the films of Ingmar Bergman, like you, you can go on and on and on and just connect it to this whole world um, of great symbology and art. But <clears throat> that's what I liked so much about your recontextualizing of Euronymous is that that sort of, that romantic myth image, um, it's not the image that's important, it's that sort of effervescent spirit behind the myth image. And the reason why we get so tired of cliches is because they feel like they've exhausted the fire of of the myth image. But, you know, anyone who loves heavy metal has felt that thing before, that sort of unnameable, like, massive thing. And I, I, I really loved how it was, it felt like you were doing, like, a mature reapproach to that of, like, let's find a way if we can recapture by perhaps even just reframing it that unnameable thing that draws us um, to even art like heavy metal. And also I love Melmoth the Wanderer. So that was an especially like, I'm, I'm predisposed to loving that, but it was like, I loved the idea. And then also the specific subject matter you were using. So I was just clapping like a child the whole time. <laughs> oh yeah. I mean, this is like, um, one of the really cool things about this book is, um, so there's this line in, I think it's 1984 by George Orwell, um, where he says, like, the best books are the ones that you already know. And for, like, most, for a lot of people who are into into metal, we, we know these bands. We know that Tommy only getting his fingers cut off story. We know church burnings and probably even know a lot of the, the newer bands you mentioned, like Conjurer and Venom Prison. I mean, Venom Prison being on the show. Um, Conjurer should come on the show. Um but seeing them again and seeing them in all these new ways is really fucking cool. And and it, even if there weren't these new ways, it's it's still kind of nice sometimes to hear about stuff you love. <laughs> you you don't ha have to put in a whole lot of effort just to to make me like clap like a seal when someone just says carcass, right? Yeah. <laughs> I was like, they're a band. I know those people. It's like. You know, there's, there's, it's very easy to make me happy with uh, the subject matter you've chosen. But um, oh, we should, we, you know, what we should do is play some some real heavy ass music. We um, should, yeah, we should do that. Yeah, you, you get to go first, Landon. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah. Um, uh, no I pressure. Arbitrarily <laughs> chose that. I think so, um, Dan can go last. <coughs> Just, you know, it's about him and all. So I was torn between a lot of things, trying to think of like. Um, one of the heaviest things I could think of that really sort of captures um, the essence of things. And so like there's immediate ones like Fight Fire with Fire is one of the heaviest songs I've ever heard even still. Um, 
like I was tempted to go with something by Paul Bearer, who um, capture a lot. Uh, something from Atma Moores by Evoken, um, who are just absolutely phenomenal. There's Mournful Congregation. I've been listening to a fuckload of Typo Negative recently. Oh, yeah. Um, but uh, specifically, um, World Coming Down. Uh, just, uh, I wasn't even thinking about the title. I was just thinking about the song Everyone Dies. Um, and then I realized <laughs> that given the conditions, I was like, oh, that's, um, that's a bit on the nose. Well, Okay. Um, uh, I think uh, Type but, of Negative are the last band to mention this book, aren't they? Yeah. They are, yeah. Um, I was eventually torn between um, something from Watching from a Distance by Warning and something from the um, Stomach Earth debut record, and so far only record. And I decided eventually to go with Stomach Earth for this. Um partly because I think that Warning already gets, to be fair, a rightful amount of praise. Um, like, absolutely fucking incredible new metal band. One of the best that have ever done it. But Stomach Earth feel um, looked over in a way that's really frustrating. Um, it It's a one-man funeral doom side project by the former guitarist of the Red Chord, the, um, the, the deathcore band that eventually turned themselves into, like, a technical progressive grindcore band, um, which is, you know, a hell of a way to fix your shit. Uh, <laughs> go from a genre that I hate to a genre that I go absolutely fucking bananas for. Um, and their guitarist, who's their main songwriter, did um, actually a bunch of different little one-off things, and this is his Funeral Doom one. Um, only put out one record um, in 2013. They have some demos on under the name Neuralathotep, but only the one full LP. But going with the song Void Angel Ritual, which is the opening track, which is just... Uh, this monumentalist ode to, like, the death word gaze, which, I mean, I, I, a great deal of heavy metal is about, you know, death consciousness and um, reckoning with that. And it can feel cliche in a certain way but uh anyone who's had their life touched by death um it doesn't it doesn't really get less important um it just sort of becomes frustrating that other people are like that's ah, you know you're you're fixating on shit be like bro you're gonna die you gotta think about that shit you're you're gonna you are gonna die look at your wife she's gonna die like um for a very long time i was very much that dude um and this just <laughs> captures that uh perfectly in my nice. opinion it's just like it it's the musical equivalent of watching a tarkovsky film or like re-watching the turin horse by bellatar which is just one of the most monumentally heavy films i've ever fucking seen cool so yeah okay void angel ritual by stomach earth
So that was Void Angel Ritual by Stomach Earth. Um, I like knew of them, then forgot about them, then was reintroduced to them when I asked you about this. So thank you for that. Absolutely. Um, That's yeah. uh, part of the pleasure of this. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to play my my selection in a minute. It's it's a really obvious one, but it's yeah, it's okay, whatever. Okay. <laughs> but, um, anyway, uh, yeah, we're not we're not here to do like scene cred dick measuring my my yeah. my choice is obvious but it it works because it is literally the <laughs> song ever written uh so so dan um i was gonna i'm, I'm glad landon brought up deaf consciousness because not only is it an amazing album by um i was gonna say plan for burial but the same have a nice life i know <laughs> i know <laughs> i'm getting it i'm getting antsy <laughs> i know we're all antsy we're all fucking quarantined i haven't been outside for a week i um, lost my fucking job like just not not to, not to try to dick measure with you it's just like fuck oh no you know? <laughs> no yeah yeah we're all yeah we're all just like misery dick measuring at the moment life is um, bad yeah life is bad but uh, uh, yeah anyway what I'm gonna say is uh yeah death consciousness the 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 idea that we're all gonna die that death is always around us, always imminent. I could get hit by a meteorite by the time I'm, or get a brain hemorrhage by the time I'm done with this sentence. Um, how how much is that part of heaviness and the the whole I like meta genre specific idea of heaviness wherever it is in the world? I think it's you know it's extremely key to it all. Um, you know, I think heaviness for me is is a sort of reckoning with yourself in one form or another. Um, and more often than not, it's a reckoning with the side of yourself which you are less comfortable with. Um, perhaps the side of yourself that has hateful thoughts or violent impulses or is jealous or is hurting. Uh, the elements of your personality that you might seek to suppress in some way. Um, and inevitably, as you guys have just said, you know, there's that self has to come to its end at some point. Um, and the, the ultimate reckoning with yourself is to reckon with your own demise. So, so it, death is is you know extremely prominent in heaviness and you know in metal it's um you know that kind of existential dread uh is is very important to where it gets a lot of its heft um and it's something that it has in common with a, a huge amount of other kind of art forms as well um so yeah i mean pillars yeah i mean i, I really liked one of the like not just clack like a seal, but pumping my fist in the air moments was um, when he brought up uh, Phil Elverham's albums and basically him in general, because I just yeah. love his work. But um, yeah, his, his, um, when his life was touched by death and he made a just incredible album. I think a it's trio a, of albums, actually. Like it, it wasn't just the one. Yeah, a, a, I'm thinking mainly of a crow looked at me because that's the one mentioned in the book. But uh, yeah, I think his other, the ones after that were, um, I mean, 
you know, that I think it's it's always going to be there in it in his work now. And yeah, he he's been not only a brilliant indie musician, he's been a, a really talented black metal musician as well. Wind's Wind's poem was a really great black metal album, but um, yeah, a crow looked at me was like, yeah, that was like a kick in the face, and that was so incredibly heavy with a capital H. Um, why did you? Uh, settle on that one that actually came out of uh, the conversation i had with gilles de Molder from oathbreaker um oh, nice he he brought up um Elverum in the terms of we were talking about heaviness and he was talking uh, we you know in terms of acoustic music and you know who executes heaviness extremely well in an acoustic environment and so he brought up that album in that context um and then obviously i went and explored it a bit further i'd heard of um phil Alvarum. i hadn't really listened to much of his stuff um the mount Erie stuff so um you know it, it, that's it, that's really interesting work because it's it's sort of uh, it, put, it explores this idea of is there grief or strength of emotion which is beyond artistic expression uh that artistic expression is just kind of incapable of being able to touch on uh the power and the sort of the, you know the, you know this, this sort of all-consuming effect of that emotion um and i just think that resonates so well with a lot of what metal is reaching for is, is it's literally going a full pelt trying to um trying to, to trying to match a level of emotional intensity in the music and the sound and the force and power of the sound hmm. so yeah but actually yeah it came out of this conversation uh you know with jill from oathbreaker um yeah which which in itself oh, wow. is a fascinating conversation um in the book hmm. Yeah, I, I love Oathbreaker. I'm very uh, in anticipation of a new one from them. But, but I, I like that idea of just, is there something so profound or terrible that we can't reach it at all? Because the standard idea with metal is it's the most extreme, well, extreme metal, it's, it's the most extreme form of music. Therefore, if you just make more extreme, you'll make more of whatever emotion you're trying to conjure. So if you're like angry, you can just sound like Pissgrave, but go faster and faster and faster and angrier and angrier until you're the most angrier person could be. Or if you're sad, you could just slow it down and sound like, I don't know, um, fuck, uh, Bell Witch or someone, and just slow it down and slow it down until you're the most sad a person could be. But um, yeah, with um, A Crow Looked at Me, it's he, a person at the absolute lowest point of their life and they're still making art, but there's something beyond the art which they can't ever talk about, ever touch or get near to. And it's still like an incredibly beautiful piece of art, but it's all it's incomplete and it's always going to be incomplete. I just yeah, just kind of dug that idea of um that you can't just turn can't just keep turning up the volume until you till you get the so you can get an emotion you know for me it also um it came up it comes up again in in a sort of broader and it's sort of a, let's talk about now 
is is when um, stuff happens, you know, in the real world, which sort of makes heavy music somehow seem too much or too vulgar. You know, so Columbine was an obvious example of that, and the way that Marilyn Manson was um, scapegoated for that, and how he was held up as, you know, that all these kids got murdered. And we want to make this person somehow accountable because what he's doing is just vulgar in the context of this. And then at 9-11 with Slipknot, it was kind of like the same. It, it put after 9-11, after an atrocity like that, it it's sort of is problematic for heavy music because it's almost it's almost and I talk about this in the book, it's almost like you know that level of emotional of emotion bearing in the context of a wider outpouring of grief sort of seems somehow seems appropriate um and i think now you know and it's interesting we're you know saying listening to typo negative but oh we shouldn't talk about everything everyone dies but everything dies um but i think maybe we should because you know i think i actually was talking about this the other day i feel like to deal with the stuff that's happening now, I think metal might have some of the tools that we need to cope with it. Um, but it's interesting how even as big fans of it, like we are big consumers of it, we sort of shy away from it because we think, oh no, maybe it's just a little too little too much. Maybe it's not appropriate to bring that up in this context. So it's, mm -hmm. it's a similar, that's like the macro level version of, of that sort of very personal emotion. Like I can't convey this incredibly difficult personal emotion in music and then and then oh this music doesn't seem doesn't fit with the kind of the tenor of what's going, you know in the world at the moment maybe i should just kind of tone it down a bit but it's really interesting i don't know what you guys think of that yeah i uh, I, I i've run into that um that's actually part of stuff i've been pondering a lot recently of watching as people get older and they fall one of the big reasons that I see people cite for falling out of love is <clears throat> with it is encountering, you know, the the furious banality of a lot of tragedy in the world. Sometimes the theatricality of heavy metal doesn't feel like it captures for them. That I I don't I don't necessarily feel that way, but I can at least sympathize somewhat that it it isn't. I think people fault necessarily having their own personal emotional disconnect with it becoming now this is vulgar because this no longer speaks to me in the language that I need in order to process um, things that have happened in my life or things that I witness happening outside. And we become very quick to judge the tools that other people use to process things. <clears throat> I mean, obviously that can be somewhat of of a cheap answer in a lot of ways for these things, because it can make people unaccountable for, uh, you know, you hope that you become more sensitive to things like vulgarity being a real thing. Like there's some topics that just aren't really fun or funny to joke about, but then seeing some people sort of read, read heavy metal um, in specific or heavy art in general as being flippant towards those subject matters as opposed to, I don't know, remembering that sometimes you make it because you are immersed in it or you feel immersed in it and needing some 
some means to process it. Like, I don't, I don't know how someone could make art about, say, like, people roll their eyes at it, but people are going to be making art about the coronavirus shit going on. Like, it's 100% going to happen, and totally understandably, because it's this massive, uh, it threatens to be a massive psychic trauma, especially with, like, the most recent news that I saw were images of rows of tanks going through uh, American cities. Yeah, like so that, um, and the Department of Justice pushing for the ability to have trialless, indefinite uh, uh, seclusion for people that they can just snatch people and throw them into a cell indefinitely on the grounds of basically wartime law, but for a virus. And with the We're rise of global fascism, <clears throat> with the rise of global fascism in general, the way that that feels like this ominous apocalyptic threat. Like, I don't know how someone could earnestly say that making heavy art about it is automatically vulgar in a disqualifying sense. I mean, I know people will say that, but it's, I can't necessarily understand it because it's like, what, what the fuck else do you do? Hmm. Like. It's like being a a fish, you can't talk about water. It's all around us all the time. Part of the inherent tie, I think, of like Lovecraft to heavy metal um, is one of those, um, and then later um, Borges to metal as well, um, is specifically that notion of looking at enormity and things that are scalar. The scalar difference between us and them is so massive that we feel like crushed and powerless. And it can be anything from the enormity of addiction to death, to loss, to global pandemics, to global fascism. And sometimes people fault artists or people who consume art for wanting art that helps them process that rather than helps them fix it. And I think that that's, as someone who's gone through a lot of therapy in my life and has internalized a lot of stuff, I think that impulse is profoundly fucked up of people. That it's like, oh, you use art that has this profound deathward gaze, like deliberately seeks to find and commune with very, very heavy subject matter. Um, Well, I don't use that to process things. So you are being vulgar. (laughs) And it's especially frustrating to hear that from people that, again, um, a few years before would have at least understood it, even if they didn't personally connect with that art. That it becomes a sudden, like, well, I don't connect with that methodology, so therefore I'm, I consider it a moralist failure that you do. I don't know. Cool. So we'll undoubtedly talk about some more uh, crazy fucked up shit. But first, I'm going to play my selection. Because, you know, that's my... My prerogative here. So I picked a band that I was happy to see got a pretty much a whole chapter in the book. Uh, Electric Wizard, my homeboys from Dorset. Uh, they're from Wimborne. I'm from another Bourne in, in Dorset. No one able to dox me. <coughs> oh, got the Rona. Um, and um, yeah, what can I say about this band? Um, their first few albums were incredible. They've kind of fell off a little bit 
Um, the last few ones I just haven't really bothered with that much. Uh, but the first couple, so Come My Fanatics and um, <coughs> uh, South Fighter 1, just, yeah, absolutely unimpeachably brilliant uh, stoner rock doom metal albums. Just really up there, brilliant. Um, and the first song off uh, Come My Fanatics, Return Trip, is um yeah it just um it was the first ever song by theirs i ever heard uh i was it was played on in bbc radio one by john peel um a friend recorded it off the radio and gave me a tape of it on because he was like you're gonna be into this and i was and it was like it was like the soundtrack to my entire youth this one song and I remember like singing it in the car with my friend and um uh yeah, just yeah, it was just massive, massive looming over my youth. And it was especially cool that these guys lived like twenty miles away from me and in a town that was virtually identical to my own. We went through exactly the same shit. The the stuff that um Dan describes in the book about growing up in these tiny uh rural market towns in uh the back end of country it being very insular and um just feeling like because you're wearing a, a corn hoodie down the street you're it's, you're like a witch almost it's um yeah it's totally stuff i can relate to um this song is is long it is so dark and heavy it's just about misery and very little else it's just yeah this, it, this, this is what i think of when i think of a heavy song so, um, yeah, here's Return Trip by Electric Wizard.
can I just pick up on um, something? Oh, that? yeah, absolutely. Oh, okay. I'll just go in for a um, do, do a little reintro. So that was a return trip by Electric Wizard, and we were just talking about the whole, I guess, uh, canopy art after coronavirus uh, thing. So, so Dan, I thought you um, you wanted to pick up some something from uh, what Langdon said. Yeah, just in, just in terms of the um, the Lovecraft connection with metal music, and you know, because we've just uh, listened to Electric Wizard, I mean, mm-hmm. they are the, they are the great Lovecraft heavy band for me, Lovecraftian heavy band for me. They really they really nailed on that idea of cosmic despair and that sense of our, our man's sort of utility, he, the human race's futility in the scale of of the universe so i thought that was a, a kind of excellent um segue there talking about that theme uh through to uh, electric wizard and their kind of very particular brand of nihilism um mm. which at the same time you know i find you know it, it, it you know like sort of exploding those issues in the microcosm of a market town in dorset to be as as huge as those kind of elder gods uh, from Lovecraft. Um, I think that's why they're, they're some of the great, one of the great, great British bands. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, for me, like, the, the feeling of Electric Wizard is the feeling of being 15 years old and smoking really crap hash that may have been mud under a skate park uh, off a uh, ramp and um like taking mushrooms and realizing like we having that kind of lovecraftian realization that the whole world is huge even your mind is unimaginably huge and it's uh utterly you can never comprehend it you, you could do a million mushroom trips in a in a tent in a field like i was doing and you'll never experience all your brain can do really grasp the the elder gods or what cthulhu really is he's not a dragon squid he's like way more than that it's all anything we can say about anything is always going to be partial there's always like a negative uh ontol- um epistemology to the whole thing of it and yeah that's that's for me is it, it, like the same as electric wizard just this connect between doing shit drugs and a shit shit town that you're probably going to die in and then also the cosmos then also like the whole universe is there too so yeah i really wish electric wizard was still good why can't they be still good controversial point they are still good <clears throat> no wrong that's so wrong and uh, I'm, black I'm gonna, masses I'm, is my favorite record by them probably because i got insanely wrong I got really high and listened to it one time. It's so high. But like the flipping joke aside, like it just, it did that thing that you want really heady, either heavy or psychedelic music. And the, obviously the linkage between heavy metal and psychedelic music in general is um, almost to the point where they're a near one-to-one. Um, but it, it did that magic thing where the record was on, but I practically couldn't hear it. I felt like I'd walked through a portal um, into some other thing, into some other space. And apparently I'm the only one that had that happen with that album. <laughs> yes, you were. I'm pro- sure not even Electric Wizard uh, like, liked that album. They functionally disowned it, but um, 
good. But yeah, that's the beauty of art. Um, it's yeah, I think that 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 sense of um, it's obviously not just that sense of scale. It's the only thing that's heavy, but that's one of the most um, primordial senses of of heaviness. That's the like the caveman staring at a cave bear, and it's just this massive, like hateful engine of muscle and flesh. And you're like, ah, fuck me, like. If that thing so much as growls, I'm fucking dead, and everyone that I know is dead, and all of you know this early <laughs> bit of humanity's just toast. Um, it's why we have like we look at um, religious imagery of like what's the most frightening and profound thing, and it's images of inexplicable mass death. It's images of um, pestilential disease or pestilential vermin. Um, uh, the ocean being the sort of like primordial heavy space, um, but also, you know, the forest, like capital F of like the notion of a forest that seems to go on forever and swallows us whole. We get constant images of being swallowed whole, which sort of, again, loops back to smallness versus bigness. And... Again, you, you can run into some people that are very flippant about like, well, just don't be so nihilistic, like tut tut and getting weird and and moralizing about it. But part of my years um, involved in like different Buddhist practice and specifically um, elements of meditation and like when you're supposed to meditate on a topic versus not is that like we all kind of hold that kernel of deep anxiety about how small we are and how vast everything else is. I mean, that's one of the kernels of a sense of political disenfranchisement is the sense that no matter what our desires are, our power to affect change is so much smaller than the powers that oppress us. That's where anxiety about like the health of a loved one comes from. That's, um, even even these broader things that people want us to be more proactive with or read like that sense of nihilistic despair as immediately disqualifying of any kind of labor or work like it. Um, I don't want to be so quick as to say that everyone carries that within them, but like they basically do. Um, and it's how well people tend to be able to lie about it. So, yeah, Dan, um, so was there anything you left out of, um, of Heavy? Was there anywhere, anywhere you wanted to go that you, that you just couldn't or you just didn't feel like a fit? Um, that's a good question. Um, there are definitely absences. Uh, I, I don't really get into industrial music or industrial oh, yeah, music. So Ramstein, uh, Nine Inch Nails, and I'd, I'd bring like Code Orange in from kind of where we are now is a really kind of exemplary example of uh, a band incorporating that kind of stuff into their sound again. Um, so yeah, I haven't, um, I didn't really go there. Um, no real reason why not. It just, I, you know, it just didn't quite fit into the flow of what I was doing. I'd, I'd like to. Um, 
you know, I think um, that there are absences in terms of bands. I mean, you know, we've spoken already about Paul. I mean, that, that, that chapter that has Electric Wizard in it has Sleep, Electric Wizard, mm-hmm. Elder and Primitive Man. And I, I do love doom metal, so I could have added another two or three bands into there, but it would have really overbalanced the book. Um, so yeah, so there's stuff there's stuff missing. Um, I, what struck me was oh well, I guess the other the other thing is the whole new wave of British heavy metal. I I, I don't really get into that either. Um, and I, quite a long bit on Maiden. I mean, that's... oh yeah, yeah. I guess I, I kind of sort of look at them as their own world, really. So hmm. um, I I guess I don't talk about the movement in much detail. Um, yeah. But, um, but yeah, I mean, you know, it, it is a book of, you know, as much about what's not in there as what is in there in many ways. I guess, uh, like, um, you mentioned it quite briefly, but, like, that kind of, like, sunset strip kind of hair metal thing doesn't come up huge amount. You could easily go into, like, Motley Crue and Guns N' Roses, or Aerosmith even. And, yeah. Um, but, yeah. Uh, yeah, I don't think that they – are they heavy? Exactly. Like, are they heavy? I no, don't think they're particularly I, heavy. <laughs> I, I mean, you know, I don't think they are, um, and you know, I, and I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I think what they do is is different, um, but I w- I don't think they're necessarily heavy. Although, you know, I guess the crew do express that kind of shadow side thing, sex and drugs, um, and it's a sort of alternate alternative lifestyle. Um, you know, I'm not saying that there aren't Motley Crue songs that, you know, aren't heavy. Um, there are, but yeah, they just, you know, yeah, I, I just did it. I just passed over them. And then I got, you know, there was the review of the book in The Guardian picked up on the fact there was no glam metal and there was no power metal in there either. But I find power metal yeah. in a good way pretty preposterous. So I don't, I don't really oh, feel. Okay, cut the recording. <laughs> yeah, cut recording, delete everything. <laughs> Anyone who doesn't acknowledge Blind Guardian as one of the greatest bands of all time is not allowed in this show. Blind not... Guardian slaps so fucking hard. Blind Guardian are a great band. Look, I'm not saying they're not <laughs> great bands. I think. Oh, sorry, I already deleted the recording. Um, <laughs> when I say something <laughs> preposterous, that's not a that's not even a, a negative thing. Um, Better not be. I, I don't know. I just like earlier. I'm very much guided by my personal taste so it, there is prejudice in there it's in bill i'm afraid uh, okay I'll, I'll let you off but uh yeah you know like blind guardian then i'm gonna kill you with a sword <laughs> and, um, but, hansi uh, would approve of that i think the the murder with a sword or a mace yeah any kind of medieval weapon a morning yeah. star even um yeah I'd, I'd wear like a kind of freely open shirt and have i'd grow my hair long obviously um yeah and also just on a personal note you've you've got rob delaney in here what i love that guy i love him so much I, is he and is he basically the nicest guy in the world please tell me he is i only email i only sent uh i emailed him uh via his agent for the for the for the book i'd love to I'd love to meet him at some point. And that, and that came out of the fact that I've seen him, at, I think, uh, I've seen him at at least one sleep show and, and one high on fire mm. show, you know, and he's just there. 
you know. Uh, <laughs> it, and he's, he's a, about ten feet tall, so you won't. Yeah, yeah I mean, he, he really sticks out, and he's a massive Matt Pike fan. And the, he did a very cool. Um, Vice did it. He did a sort of sit down with Matt Pike when they were talking about alcoholism, and uh, so I just thought he was an interesting. For the introduction to the book, I wanted some kind of differing viewpoints as a way of settling everyone into the book, and so I was keen to talk to him, and I was really pleased that he got back. Um, I don't know what he thinks. I did send it. I have sent him a copy of the book. I have no idea if he's seen it or what he thinks of it. Um, but yeah, he's great. Well, yeah, I, I'm sure he loves it because he's just this like huge golden retriever of a man, uh, and um, yeah, love him and. Um, also, his his show is really good. Um, but yeah, we should um, we should wrap up with your pick of the heaviest song of all time, and this is where you get to prove your cred to the world, and you just get to whip it out, whack it on the table, and we get to measure every single millimeter of you, because we this is a full cred check right here. If you don't produce the heaviest song ever written, then um, then I will delete the episode. No joking this time. <laughs> so, let's do it. Steel is strong. So listen, um, I'm gonna I'm gonna put down what I've what I've you know said to you previously when we were preparing for this. Um, if I was gonna play it safe, I would have chosen "My Will" by Primitive Man. Um, mm -hmm. For me, Primitive Man sonically are abominably heavy like crazy heavy um and lyrically and thematically they're just i think that 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 song has a lyric i think about smoking someone's crushed skull i can't remember the exact thing but it, it no. it's absolutely amazing and then they have another another song commerce where they use the word socio-economic uh in the context of this just unbelievable like doom just getting your head pounded into the into the air. So I could have chosen them because they are really, really heavy. But I'm going to choose Suicide Note Part 2 by Pantera. And the reason why I'm choosing this song is, uh, you know, when I was, when I was growing up, um, Great Southern Trend Kill came out, and I was, I was 14 when that album came out. Um, you know, of all the albums that I've listened to, metal albums, that's probably the album that I've listened to the most over the years. Um, and the book has a big, big chapter in it, really looking at the story of that band. You know, so people say about the Beatles that the Beatles are interesting because they have a beginning, a middle, and an end uh, as a band. You know, some bands just go on and on, um, and they don't really have a story. And Pantera, one of those bands that has a story, and it's not necessarily a nice story. It's a very tragic story. Um, but it's also got kind of, for me, sort of highest highs and the lowest lows. Um, and I did interview Phil Anselmo for this book. Um, and I just think he's a very interesting and complex figure um, and a very flawed person uh, who's achieved like amazing things in terms of heaviness. And for me, this song, uh, in, in terms of that raw emotion that it expresses, um, that sense of someone being trapped inside their own anguish, I think is just incredibly well conveyed. What he was doing with his voice 
1996 was you know he was he was listening to extreme metal and he was ripping his throat apart in service to delivering the intensity of the song required and then he had you know for me unquestionably the best band uh, of that era um backing him and in the case of this song some of the most extreme and heavy kind of grooving that they did so that's why i've chosen this song okay so um just delete the whole episode another one of my bands that i i don't like for no particular reason is just a, a visceral hatred is pantera i don't like cradle of filth for pantera i have no idea why um well, I, I strongly I, like pantera okay you, you're allowed to i, uh, I compensate you know, i pick up the slack apparently yeah but um yeah i just i've I just I I hear walk or whatever, and it's just like, okay, whatever. Not super into this. I have no idea where it comes from in my brain, but um, maybe I just don't like metal. Maybe that's the problem. Um, they are a very like heavy metal band. Like it, it's yeah. very like. <laughs> if I had to make like a trunk of heavy metal, they would be very fucking close to the center of that trunk. Yeah, I. I yeah, who knows? Maybe maybe I just like um like quiet, nice indie rock where like sad people in sweaters talk about how sad they are. I mean, I'll throw out that one Sufjan Stevens record is fucking heavy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. There's tons of and in the airplane over the sea is heavy as fuck. I mean, literally, because it's, it's like not so when distorted it's, when it's not being horny as hell about Anne Frank. It's not horny about Anne Frank. It's a it's, little bit horny about Anne Frank. Not horny about Ad Frank. And frankly, it's weird. <laughs> <laughs> that was a good pun. Um, <laughs> uh, okay, but um, okay, we are going to play uh, Pantera Suicide Note Part Two, uh, the sequel to the original Suicide Note, um, Suicide Note Two, the, the Suicide and In, <laughs> um, Suicide Squad. Um, Anyway, uh, but yeah, I, this book is already out, right? Yeah, yeah. Cool. So I will put an, a link to it on probably not Amazon, but a better uh, distributor of books. Um, and if you do manage to go to a bookstore, if there are any open, you can certainly buy it from one. Uh, if not, then you can uh, order it online. It's I, I assume it's also available digitally. And... Yeah. Um, yeah, it is like like we said. It's one side is get, giving you exactly what you want from a book about metal music. It's giving you like a load of the big names, and you, you get what you want out there, and you get some nice little surprises. Like, oh, I love Oathbreaker. Now I talk about Oathbreaker. Oh, they got the guys from Conjurer here, and yeah, that that I love. And then at the other side, there's all this crazy stuff. These like crazy ligaments and connections between things. That I would, that it's all other stuff I love. It's all the other stuff that outside of metal that I love. And then it gets brought in and it's like a smorgasbord of all your favorite food. It's like sushi pizza with like vodka beer. Um, but more appetizing than that sounds. So, yeah, folks, go and read heavy. Um, you've got time. I know you've got time to do it. So, yeah, don't be silly. Go Read Heavy by Dan Franklin. 
and um yeah come back soon because we're doing double a side um this week we've got uh, andy from the antifada uh, talking about his book about communist space ufo cults that's pretty cool too and um yeah we'll be having lots more stuff and there'll be patreon episodes too so go to our patreon give us your money um i i thought this whole thing would like diminish would like destroy a patreon like people would be like hoarding their own money but apparently we're we're doing quite well so um yeah keep us keep us in the keep us doing well please uh but yeah here's um pantera boop okay and we're out let me just end the recording thing Yeah!